Hello my friends, welcome to the Hug from the Moon podcast, episode 3, The Power of Stories. It's really lovely and wonderful to have you here. Wherever you may be, I'm really pleased that you're tuning in. And I hope you're liking the Hug from the Moon podcast so far. If you are enjoying it, how about you tell someone? <laughs> tell your friends, share it around so we can get as many people listening as we can. So this week's theme is called The Power of Stories. We've got our usual two poems and a song and our featured poet of the week. A little bit different this week, it's our featured short story writer of the week. Um, which I'm really excited to be sharing with you all. So without any further ado, let's get going with our first poem which is called The Flying Fist, The Smile and the Eye. Pete Kelleher punched me in the eye, in a cloakroom in 1989. It wasn't exactly a haymaker, but it left me shocked and half-blind with surprise, with a tiny bruise to my ten-year-old's pride. In the cloakroom at the day's end, busting excitement, all nervous energy led. Someone knocked into me, I knocked into him. Pete whirled around to see me smile and then said, Something with actions, because he didn't have the words to express. His spitting rage at my face, but in my defence I like to say, Here's how my smile was meant. One of shared camaraderie at our predicament. An elbow in the side, a wink of the eye, a raised eyebrow, Roger Moore, James Bond style. The giddy excitement of the home time. Oh, what a carry on, eh, Pete? Guess he saw something different than what I had in mind. In the blink of an eye, he reached back and let fly. A flash of white and a giant Batman sign. Kablam! I stumbled back with silvery stars in my eyes to a chorus of disapproving cries and a few are you all right but nothing too meaningful because everyone wanted to get out of there right i shook it off said i was fine sucked the tears in and hobbled out into the light back to the bustle of the tide tried to shake it off really tried saw my mum and she knew but i wasn't bloody or bruised what's happened she cried inflection in her voice when a fear come alive dramatic shrill cry unplugged the dam and i let fly Snot trailing, eyes burning, marching back to the scene of the crime crying. I see Pete sitting in a cab idling. I then became the shrill accuser's cry. It was him, I blubbed. While Pete looked on, half bored, and commanded his chauffeur to drive, drive. Oh dear, I cringe as I look back. It all fades to black. And that, as far as the memory goes, my friends, is that. Before that fateful day in the cloakroom, I felt sorry for Pete for a long time. His grey shirt, oversized, with cuffs perpetually unbuttoned and flailing by his side. He held himself awkwardly, neither fat nor thin, with a bright light on his head flashing. The weirdo kid, the one with the fleas, every class had one of him. Collected every day by a cab, whisked back to the lab, to be dissected, vivisected, exposed to viruses with his sweat collected, directed to wee in a cup so it can be tested, Pete Kelleher, were you bred in a lab or a care home, far from the prying ten-year-old's eyes? I guess I had some kind of cautious, vigilant mind. You were different, needed some love and care. One time we were playing as a large group, tag or it, and you were up. It seemed unfair. You were up for too long. They were ganging up. So I let you tag me. A small act of kindness from the sickly, skinny boy with his hair shorn short, 
with a keen eye for justice but tortured by the thought I'm different from the rest far from the best if anyone tries to be my friend I'm sure that'll end so I'm sorry that my smile was plastered on my face all wonky and wrong sorry I let myself be misunderstood all along sorry you felt different too I don't know what became of you hope life worked itself out for you sorry for the smile and the shrill pitiful cries wish I could have slowed down the moment seen the punch before you'd thrown it caught the thought in your head in a net and sealed it and owned it or took a step back to avoid the flying fist or just took the hit or hit him back harder or just admit I don't like hitting I don't like being hit maybe it was fine I got hit in the eye it hurt and I tried not to cry my mum saw my pale little face knew something wasn't right I lost control and screamed like a child but that's what I was right ten years old that's more than fine I wasn't a tough kid I'm not a tough guy I'm a 40 year old father of two with lots of puck marks on my pride but this can be put to bed it's time for me and Pete for the smile and the flying fist and the eye and the flashing white light and the ring in my ears and the bruise to my ten year old's pride it's all fine I bid it all farewell and goodbye So that was Flying Fist, A Smile in the Eye. Let me tell you a bit about that poem. So that is one of my poems that's just an entirely autobiographical story. Something that happened to me when I was 10. And the bit where I'm speculating and adding bits in is when I'm talking about the kid who punched me and trying to understand him. And, you know, he did seem a bit different from us, so that's what that's about so within carrying on with the theme of the power of stories is that i think for a long time i told myself a story about that event thinking that i was a bit ashamed or embarrassed you know for even just getting upset or even for, for being hit or anything like that and so um i think sometimes we can tell ourselves unhelpful stories about ourselves so I think with that one, there's a bit of a healing part of the story, even though I've, to me, it's quite lighthearted because it's as lighthearted as I get, really. <laughs> but um, to me, it's um, it's a healing kind of poem because it makes me think, you know, to forgive myself and him, this kid, and think, you know, it was actually fine to be upset or to be hurt. It was just one of those random things that happened, you know. So that's that poem. Um, next up we have our featured poet of the week and it's something special we've got a short story written by my daughter's best friend Mae Scott she's 10 years old she's a very free spirited artist and I'm like a pure artist of a person so I'm looking forward to hearing and seeing all the things she's going to create as she gets older um, and this is the story that she sent me. It's called Diary of an Evacuee. It's coming now. Diary of an Evacuee. My heart is pounding as a whimpering noise approaches from the living room. Tippy-toe down the stairs, trying to keep the creaks to a minimum. Scatter pictures of happy days at the beach and not threats of war align the stairway wall. I walked through the beautiful beamed house. I stop 
and gently leant my head against the door. My legs go to jelly and I can barely hold my legs as I catch a part of the conversation my mum and dad are having. I can't do it, mum says, but it's safer for them in the country. I know. All of a sudden I feel something tugging on my shirt. I turn around and I see my little annoying brother Jack. I see tears in his eyes. He grabs my legs so tight and doesn't let go for ages. I hear mum and dad get up, pick Jack up and run upstairs hoping they didn't hear. In no time at all we're standing at the overcrowded station. My bag is pulling my arm to the dirty floor. Jack was whining as if he was a dog with a broken leg. My mother gently planted a kiss onto my cheek and then Jack's. She then handed us both a brown, scrunched paper bag. I have a look inside, a few biscuits with cracks and fragments missing, lay dead on each other. Dad squeezes us tight. He says something but I can barely hear over the crying and shouting from bossy and confused teachers and helpers. We line up together as a skinny lady with kind features and a polka dot skirt comes around with a brown wooden clipboard asking our names and tying it to us on a little brown tag. All of a sudden a loud noise approaches. From the black and red train we are pushed into the small doors by teachers. Jack huddles even closer to me as if I can't breathe. Children are flooding in and grappling seats here there and everywhere. I spot two seats in the corner. I hurry over, grabbing Jack by the arm. The last children climb on and the doors shut. All of a sudden you feel the machinery pounds into action as it leaps into a fast gallop. Children are either crying or happy because they think it's an adventure. But I know what's really going to happen. My eyes start to flake as Jack's shoulder pushes against mine. All of a sudden I'm asleep, like the rest of the children. So that was Diary of an Evacuee, that was the title I gave it, Hope May doesn't mind, because it didn't have a title, so I thought I'd give it one. Um, I really like the way that was written, so like vivid, vividly described, especially liked creeping down the stairs, keeping the creaks to a minimum, I really like that line, it seemed to really flow really well, I, I really enjoyed um, reading that. Hopefully I did it justice. Um, so that's that was our feature part of the week. Next up we have a poem called Ollie and Marie. And it's going to come up now. Ollie and Marie. Ollie and Marie were driving in a car. On a first date, they hadn't got far. They pulled up at a crossroads. Ollie's glance at Marie was warm, his face creasing into a huge smile that went all the way up to the corners of his mouth, showed his teeth, flushed his cheeks, and hit his blue eyes like sunlight dappling a stream. And Marie, well, she fell right in. Her eyes were steady and set, big and brown, beautiful, but rarely met with anything like this. In that moment, she fell the hardest she had ever fallen. On the way down, 
all the way from her stomach she hit euphoria, passed through fear, crashed into giddiness, something closely resembling happiness. She felt the back of her legs go numb, the hair on her neck stood up, and she felt lust and longing and love swimming all together in her veins and felt the chains already forming. She allowed this to show in the smallest way possible, while she held herself still. The edges of her mouth lifted up ever so slightly in a tight smile, bashful. And there they were, both held in that perfect moment, at the crossroads, frozen. And as he pulled away, his expression changed to total panic and movement stilted and frantic. She didn't see. Her face was locked on his. She didn't see the truck about to hit. Marie took the impact fully. The truck spun the car on a pulley 180. The sound of the metal smashing was sickening. But it all happened in an instant, the quickening. Ollie stayed gripped to the wheel, his fingers glowing white from the effort it was taking. His breath shallow and quivering, his heart pounding like a jackhammer, ears ringing. He looked to his left, where Marie should be sitting, but there was just a seat. Marie was missing, as was the windshield with blood around the edges of the cracked glass dripping. Somewhere in the midst of the collision and the spin, Marie was flung through the windscreen. Panic gripped him, and he fumbled for his seatbelt, threw the car door open. Only then his ears tuned into the sound of the horn blaring, the truck driver's head resting on the steering wheel, the world staring. He hobbled to the side of the road and found her lying. Marie lay prone, her arms raised like a boxer's covering her face, whimpering like a wounded animal, her face shredded with glass. Ollie felt a wave of shame and knew his life would never again be the same, her eyes darting all over, riding the rippling, static wave of the shock. Ollie tried to find some words of comfort, but he had none. He heard a car arriving, turned on his heels running, flagged down the driver, spread his arm out to point. He still had no words. He knew he should have gone to be with her, held her hand, but in truth, it was enough for him to simply stay, and every part of him was telling him to run away. He'd only met her proper that day, first date. You don't know her, you don't owe her nothing, he heard of. He heard the voice of his father say. He stayed at a distance, watched her get loaded into the ambulance, watched the blue lights as they flashed off, grew dull in the distance. He could still hear the horn blaring as the policeman approached him. He could still hear her whimpering, see her cowering. He couldn't meet the man's gaze. He still couldn't find the words to say. He noticed he had her blood on his shoes and in that instant turned and ran away. So that was Ollie and Marie. What do you think of that? I quite like that because it's quite a nice little self-contained little story. I do have the tendency sometimes when I write about stuff to go onto mad tangents and go off in a direction. And sometimes it's difficult to, I think, <laughs> to follow where I'm at. 
but so I, I, I so I'm quite ill disciplined when I write basically. So for me, it's quite nice when I write something that's quite uh, seems quite disciplined because it's about a thing. It's about that story about that couple who are on their first date and get involved in a car crash. So, you know, bit bleak, but you know, I like that. Let me know what you think of that one. So, we are hurtling towards the end of another episode. Um, we're going to be finishing off with a song called Don Wago. And just to carry on with the theme of the power of stories, this one is about these two young, uh, young couple uh, called Christopher and Judith. Chris dreams of writing the novel, great that great novel, and... Um, Judith wants to be an artist as well, and they they end up moving away from London to the to the coast with dreams, you know, of of writing and being creative together. You know, these two young romantics, and they fall into the clutches or in, into the radar, into the orbit of this sinister character called Don Wego, um, and doesn't end well for them. So, that's coming up now. It's called Don Wago. Nobody knows Ooh. 
So that was Don Wego. One part of that song that I like is when he says, there's a line that says, all my dreams, they break before they're made. I quite like that. And I also like, there's a reference to Dennis Lehane. I don't know how he says his name. Dennis Lehane, Dennis Lehane. He's a really good writer from Boston. Loads of his books have been um, made into movies. Like... Gone Baby Gone, Shutter Island, Mystic River, that kind of thing. And he also wrote On The Wire. And he was talking about writing and he was saying, uh, no one cares, so you should just write. You know, no one cares what you're doing. When you're starting off, literally nobody cares what you're doing. You should just write anything. And sometimes it feels freeing, but then sometimes like that character, Chris is like, no one cares, so write it. But all I hear sometimes is no one cares. You know? So, we have come to the end again of another episode. The Power of Stories, episode three, the Hug from the Moon podcast. Thanks so much for listening. Shout out to May Scott for her wonderful story and for being our featured poet of the week. Thanks to everyone who's listened so far. Shout out to my friend Louisa, who actually did the great picture for this podcast. Um, shout out to everyone who's listened so far if you want to be a featured poet of the week please do let me know send me a DM on Instagram hug from the moon podcast on Instagram or you can send me an email um, leonhelsby79 at hotmail.co.uk but but I don't know what I said but for anyway we come <laughs> thanks for listening and I look forward to being with you again next week. Our next next one might be called, our next episode might be called In the Soup. So anyway, who knows? Have a good week. Thanks for being here. Take care.